Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. This uh, chapter is a concluding section to the first four chapters, not the entire book, but it's a concluding section of sorts because it brings to an end the tale, not of Daniel, but of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, That's it for him, and though this book is called Daniel, if you only have the first four chapters and you know, based it off of a fresh reading of it, what character is made most mention of, it would actually be Nebuchadnezzar, not Daniel. So in the standards of literature, you know, when you think of characters, the lead characters, you can have a lead character who's not the good guy all the time, right? You could have the antagonist, the bad guy. You could have the Darth Vader, if you will, to the Luke Skywalker, And in a Vader-like fashion with King Nebuchadnezzar, we see a complexity of character. That he is not a just one-dimensional bad guy. There is more to see than just a uh, monarch, a tyrant king who just wants everybody to do as he wishes and wills and will do whatever he wants to get you there. There's a little more complexity to him. And though none of us, as far as I know, I know there's new visitors here every week, so I have to be careful with this, but I don't think anyone in this room suffers from first world monarch problems, as in you are secretly the king or queen of some vast domain, and uh, you really struggle with, well, what all of us can identify with, certainly this morning, not being Nebuchadnezzar, we all struggle with pride. And that's really what is on display this morning. Now, let me gently shepherd. The moment you hear pride, the the first fail we often uh, are subject to is the prideful, well, this sermon's not for me. I mean, if I pulled out the biblical counseling handbook from my time in seminary, that would be failure number one. The prideful person often doesn't think they need Help, because they're good. So let me just, let's, let's at least get out of the starting blocks, if you will, with that one. Secondarily, because that's an you know, elevated view of self, uh, then we also have the minimization of our own problem and maximization of other problems that pride brings, right? So we see blurry at the human level, as in this also might be, I hope the person next to me is really taking copious notes, because they've got a pride problem. Well, let me get you past that next level. See right already. No, you've got it. You've got to deal with you today, just like God had to deal with Nebuchadnezzar and has had to deal with everyone. Look, friends, if there's ever a sin that we could say from the beginning has plagued mankind and we all stand in judgment under it, it's pride. Satan tempting Eve to oppose God. And James 4 makes very clear one thing. The problem with that is God opposes the proud. So there it is. This is common to man. But we have good news that comes with that in James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but he does give grace to the humble. So let's humbly sit under God's word this morning together and see James 4, 6, perfectly illustrated. Not just that he opposes the proud. Yes, you will see that with King Nebuchadnezzar. But praise God, you will also see the grace he gives to the humble in his life. And so, you know, just a pro tip. If ever you get asked to explain James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble and Uh, Maybe you don't immediately want to go to your own life and and put that embarrassment out there. You can go to Daniel chapter 4 and start by illustrating the life of King Nebuchadnezzar because chapter 4 in Daniel is an illustration, a living one, captured for us in God's perfect word of James 4, 6, God's opposition to the proud but giving grace to the humble. Now, if you're coming in late to the game, as in you haven't been here for a few weeks, we've been in Daniel 1 through 3. This clash, if you will, has been set up with Nebuchadnezzar seemingly taking a few steps forward, but more steps back. 
as it would seem if he would be paying attention, he could recognize as the theme of this book that God reigns. His universal sovereignty over all in authority. But Nebuchadnezzar hasn't caught on yet. Clearly missed in chapter 1 the the point that Daniel makes that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. He did not do that on his own. And not only did God reign by giving Jehoiakim and all of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand in chapter 1, he actually provided him with some really good exiles. Daniel and his friends. God's provision in chapter 1 was that he reigns over the exiles he ordains to come, puts them in Nebuchadnezzar's care, and King Neb misses it. Chapter 2, God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream. It troubles him, but it's for his good. But he can't recognize in Daniel's revelation or explanation of the revelation of that dream that he needs to humble himself. But as we saw, even though chapter 2 ended on the note of of Nebuchadnezzar bowing to Daniel and saying, oh, your God is is clearly the one of revelation. He explains all. Chapter 3 began last week with what? Him building a statue to himself. So there you go. He's making progress, but then he's coming back because he can't recognize in humility who actually reigns over all, and it's God alone. And from time to time, we, his children, suffer the same fate, don't we? So, chapters 1, 2, and 3, you could summarize by saying, hey, God reigns over exiles. He reigns over dreams. He reigns over the decrees of King Nebuchadnezzar and the decrees of the furnace. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar can't get it. He still wants to hold out, convinced in his own mind that though God rules and reigns and reveals and does everything, he's still going to try to be king. Not just of Babylon, but of his own life. There was a quote I came across this week, really unrelated in my study, but it hit me that this is really what God is about in Nebuchadnezzar's life and everyone's life. And and the, the writer said this when it comes to the great, the big picture of things in life. What God aims at in the arrangement of things, in the story of redemption, is that man should not glory in himself, but God alone. What God aims at, his purpose, his will, his plan, in the arrangement of things, in the story of redemption from the fall to Christ until his return, in that story of redemption is that man should not glory in himself but in God alone. And that takes you back to the fountain that has neither bottom nor brim, the sovereignty of God. Might I suggest the most humbling doctrine there is. God is sovereign and I am not. Which is another way to say God is God and I am not. So let's follow the action in chapter 4. We're only going to read the first five verses and that will catapult us into the story itself. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs! How mighty his wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house. And prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. Kings wither and rulers fade. But the word of God endures forever. So the story starts out without any time stamp. And and we might appreciate that. Did it go from chapter 3 in the white space to chapter 4 the next day? That suddenly this, this king who sees this great act of deliverance for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who gives praise to the protection that God provided for them and made a decree that no one should speak against their God, was it like the next week? 
I think as we go on, we'll see that that's probably not the case. Now, we do know that chapters 1 through 3 of Daniel likely happened in the first 10 years of Nebuchadnezzar in three different waves, uh, completely decimating Judah and bringing them into exile. It didn't happen all at once. Most scholars believe it started in 604 BC, 596, and then utter desolation and destruction by 587. So he's been in power, Daniel 1 through 3, that likely in those first 10 years. But, but I would think, and others, other commentators and theologians would agree, that this is probably a few decades later. And notice, King Nebuchadnezzar is, is um, writing chapter 4. Now, what I mean by that is, I don't know if he took, uh, you know, stylus to stone or whatever he was using to write it, or it was he was speaking and Daniel was recording it, because Daniel writes the whole book. So maybe it was Daniel, his right-hand man, well-educated, uh, would sit there, and Nebuchadnezzar, maybe towards the end of his tenure, says, I'm finally ready to tell my story, because that's what the beginning reads like, doesn't it? It's a testimony. Look at chapter 2. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. And so 1 through 3 is really this introduction, confession, if you want to call it that, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar wants, get this, all the world to know, chapter or verse 1, all people's nations and languages. And remember, we said this a few weeks back, but in case you missed it, even though the Old Testament, 99% is in Hebrew, chapters 2 to 7 of Daniel are from the earliest manuscripts they found in Aramaic, which was the common language of the day, which most believe was Daniel's way of trying to give a tract, a, a witness to God's power and reign to the reading world at the time. And the reading world at the time Daniel's writing this in the 500s BC is mostly an illiterate society. So to get this message out, the most important people have to read it. Not everybody was getting trained to read and write. Most people were servants or slaves and worked but didn't have a chance to, to unroll a scroll and get their hands on it and, and, and read for themselves. So Nebuchadnezzar wants his message of his life to go out to the world. He says it in verse 1, all the earth. And he opens with the kind of ironic greeting, seeing this is the guy who has conquered the known world at the time. Peace be multiplied to you. All y'all Assyrians that I conquered at Carchemish, peace. I want you to hear my story. And so he, he has this message for all of them to hear. But, and this is why we think it sometime has passed, because it sounds like a different Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 2, I want to show the signs and wonders that God has done for me. Verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. And then he really repeats what was back in, in uh, Daniel chapter 2, that Daniel saw that it is God who reigns forever and ever. Verse 23, he is the one who has all wisdom and might. And then Daniel tells this at the end of chapter 2 to Nebuchadnezzar that, that God's kingdom, verse 44, will be set up and never destroyed. And so you hear an echo of that language here. That's kind of the preface to this section. And then it gets into the first person. Look at verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar. So he starts to tell his tale. And he is at ease in his house and prospering in his palace. Does that mean the big... Uh, whatever those would be called, the fans are on him and the grapes are being dropped into his mouth. I don't think it's that. I think it's summary as in, life was good. I've arrived. He's over those initial waves we talked about that a new king or person in power might have experienced in chapters 2 and 3 that caused him to be so insecure and off with their head. And if anybody is going to uh, try something under my watch, I'm going to get rid of them. That, that insecure, irritable, irrational king is now saying, I'm at ease. Everything is good. There's prosperity in my palace. Maybe everyone else is out the war, but we're good. Insert God's divine revelation. Verse 5. I saw a dream that made me afraid. So there's this contrast Everything's good, verse 4. Finally, there's peace and prosperity around. And then I saw a dream that made me afraid. It alarmed me. And I lay in bed, and I, I can't get it out of my head. And so, is he going to go back to his old ways? Verse 6, I made a decree. Here it comes. We know what's going to be next, right? Well, he's changed a little bit. All the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me. 
that they may make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Hey, this time he's willing to tell what the content of the dream is. And notice, no more threats from Nebuchadnezzar, as there were before. Hey, if you don't bow to the statue, into the fire. Hey, if you don't tell me the content and the interpretation of my dream, I'll tear you limb from limb. So maybe I'm a little bit pro-Neb this morning, if you will. I'm, you know, predisposed to see the good. But it does seem that some things have changed. So he brings, verse 7, all the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, astrologers, and he tells them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation, he said. Now, if you're reading along as we have been, you'd say, why did you start with those guys? They failed you before. This is why it seems to be the passage of time. As maybe decades later, he's, you know, he's been busy, Daniel's been busy, and uh, he doesn't think I should just cut right to the chase and get Daniel in here. He leans on the guys that he's always leaned on. And so he brings them in, and they couldn't make known to him the dream's interpretation as they couldn't back in chapter 2. At last, verse 8, after some time, a little bit later, Daniel arrives, who is named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And don't read too much in that other than maybe for his reading audience. Remember, he's writing to all people's nations and leaders. Uh, they wouldn't know Daniel, the Hebrew. At the time he's writing this, they would know maybe of Belteshazzar because that's the name he gave them and that would be in the Aramaic. So he recognizes who Daniel is, and he gave him that name of his God. And maybe in, in good literary form, he's wanting to set things up. Look, this was the guy that I named for my God, but the difference was he had a spirit of the holy gods. And even that word, the holy gods, is irregular in Daniel so far. No time has Nebuchadnezzar recognized any gods as holy, as in different or set apart, which is what that word means. And even you say, but it's in plural, gods, that means he's... Polytheistic, sure, but we also know God is what? Three. So could there be the beginnings of his understanding by way of Daniel, the understanding of God is three in one? Maybe, maybe not. The text doesn't tell us. He brings Daniel in, who's been set apart, the best of the best, and tells him the dream, saying, verse 9, O Belteshazzar, chief of the musicians. So he is number one. He didn't bring him in first, again, showing the, the uh, failure and folly of the other wise men. Chief of my magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Funny thing about that verse 9, you know, Daniel has been with this guy for a while. You know what happens if uh, the boss calls you in with a really big task and builds you up with like, hey, I know nothing's difficult for you. Here's a little extra work for your Christmas holiday. And you're like, ah, oh, thanks. Or in a, truly, a truly genuine fashion, your boss just really believes in you and gives you more to do. And you're like, pressure is on a little bit. He knows the spirit of the holy gods is in Daniel. He has seen the testimony of Daniel's life. No longer the teenager. Decades later, perhaps in his 30s or 40s, there is nothing too difficult for Daniel. And this is... Uh, a subtle reference to the providence of God that we saw back in chapter 1. Daniel was prospering because God was leading the way. He put him into that position. He gave him the wisdom that was 10 times better than everybody else. And now here he is again in a position to help out the king because nothing's too difficult for him. God does give grace to the humble without them having to experience the pride. Daniel has made it so far. And so he is there in front of Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar in 10 to 12 shares the vision, shares the dream, and the focus is on a tree. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. Well, how big is this tree? There's a lot of redwoods out there that are kind of impressive. You ever seen one that um, is visible to the whole end of the earth? Verse 11. This tree grew, became strong, and its top reached to heaven, visible to the end of the whole earth. Just picture that in your mind. Uh, that's kind of top-heavy, isn't it? Isn't the earth going to start, you know? Except you science people are like, actually, Adam, here's how gravity works. But all that being said, that, that's, this tree is unlike anything else because of its immensity. But it's not just the immensity of this tree. It's the prosperity around it that it provides. Verse 12, its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit abundant. Food for all. How amazing of a tree is this? That the beasts of the field, all the beasts can be in the shade. 
and all the birds could live in the branches, and the, the peak of prosperity, all flesh was fed from it. This tree was par excellence. There was no competitor. It was the best of the best, and there is no reason for any other tree on planet Earth because this one is the grandest of them all. That's the good news. And, and by the way, um, in the Old Testament, uh, Trees can be symbolic of prosperity. Psalm 1, for instance. The blessed man who doesn't walk in the way of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. What does he do? He delights in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night and he'll be like a... I'm not asking you to arm wrestle Jerry. This is what I used to illustrate to my kids when I was teaching them. He's like a tree firmly planted which roots go down to the water. Its leaf does not wither. And in everything he does, he prospers. So Psalm 1 or Jeremiah 17 is a picture of a person who prospers by God's blessing. Or you also can have in Ezekiel 31, a tree can be an image of a whole nation. And you can read that later, but um, the two nations that uh, kind of combined together to fight Babylon at the Battle of Carchemish in like 605 uh, that were defeated by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, they're mentioned here in Ezekiel 31. And in Assyria is compared to a cedar in Lebanon, beautiful branches, forest shade, towering height. Because right before Babylon, Assyria was the best. It towered high and set its top in the clouds. Verse 10 of Ezekiel 31, but its heart was proud. So I, God, will give it into the hand of a mighty one of the nations. And he shall surely deal with its wickedness deserves. So you could have whether it's an individual who's proud or representative of a whole nation. But there is prosperity associated with the picture of a tree that is flourishing. So the symbolism here in the dream makes sense. Bad news comes in verses 13 to 16. Nebuchadnezzar writes, I, in the visions of my head, saw a watcher, a holy one. So this is an angelic being, the word watcher, having to do with a sentinel, some type of guardian with a message to deliver coming down from heaven, and this is what he proclaimed aloud in verse 14, chop down the tree. You know, need a pretty good-sized lumberjack for that one, right, Luke? I mean, this is no ordinary tree to chop down. Lop off its branches, throw them through the chipper. All the leaves stripped off and blown away. Scatter its fruit. Why the details there? Just to show that in every way, shape, and form, this powerful tree provided everything that was needed. Now in reverse, every one of those things is being removed from it. Down to the roots. So the beasts flee because there's no shade. And the birds go from the branches and nobody is prepared. Is able to be taken care of, but verse 15, down to the root though, don't uproot it. In fact, put a fence around it with a band of iron and bronze. Protect it, the watcher says. This, this tree isn't going anywhere, though it's being cut down from the power and the prestige it had. It's not going to be removed. It's not going to be uprooted. Leave it in the ground. Let, verse 15 says halfway through, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Interesting. Just like that, you go from the imagery of a tree and an it to a him, third person. Now the, the, the transition is being made for Nebuchadnezzar to hear from this uh, messenger, this, this guardian of heaven. It's going from a tree to a man. Just like that. And he'll be wet with the dew of heaven. His portion will be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. And here's the kicker, verse 16. Let his mind be changed from man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. That's going from something great to something not so great. To go from the mind of a man to a mind of a beast. A beast unable to have what? That, that complex thinking, those mental powers, that rationality. Man made in the image of God. What distinguishes him from the beast's? His mind, his thinking. You can email Curtis later if you say, you know what, I got a really smart bird. Save that thought. But in the grand scheme of things, 
great divide is in that thinking. His, his mind is going to be lost. This man is going to become like a beast. Verse 17, and it's final. This sentence is by the decree of the watchers. And if Neb wanted to, um, you know, puff himself up against that, the decision is made by the word of the holy ones. Doubling down, saying, look, King Nebuchadnezzar, you're used to making these decrees so far that what you say goes, what heavens, or what heaven says goes. To the end, and here's why heaven's putting its foot down, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. You can underline that verse as a key verse here. It's repeated in verse 25 and 32. This is the point that God is making with Nebuchadnezzar about his rule, about his reign, about who really is on top and everyone else who's not. Verse 17, this this decree is so that you may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. But then maybe the objection is, but what about those who come up in power? Aren't they impressive? No, because it's God who gives it to whom he will. And you know those ones that he gives it to whom he will? Just so you get it, he sets over it the lowliest of men. It's not a popularity or beauty contest with God and who he rises up. Clearly, that's the message from the watchers. Heaven rules and heaven gives rule down here. And if you think you can figure out who deserves to be the ruler, think again because he gives it to the lowliest. This removes all boasting, doesn't it? As if man has anything that hasn't been given from God. So that's... It. That's the message that God wants it to give. It's, the, it's Psalm 8. When I look at the heavens and the work of your hand, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the answer is, he's not much. And God wants this message to be loud and clear to Nebuchadnezzar. Apparently, verse 18, it wasn't clear enough. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw and heard. He heard the voice of the watcher in his dream. And yet he still can't get it. So he asked to ask He has to ask Daniel, Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, there's that uh, vote of confidence the king has in Daniel. You can do it. And he does recognize it's because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. You have something that all those other guys don't have. Um, Just a side note on verse 18, and this is just food for thought. What would our world be like if even one world leader asked one solid Bible teacher what they should do? I mean, think about that. What what would a nation be like if the person in charge did what Nebuchadnezzar did here? Not go to his cabinet of military powers, not go to, to the cabinet of, um, of uh, homeland infrastructure. But he goes to the one guy he knows, knows God. It's rare, isn't it? When have you ever really heard it happening? I mean, even in our own country. I mean, is there one biography out there that states here, this one president, he had this pastor or a group of pastors who had good theology keyword on speed dial and before he made any major or even minor decision he consulted with them I mean think of it right now with everything going on in our country if the president called you today and asked for your advice with Bible open How could you help him with Bible open? Because don't think for a second you have something political to offer that'll be of any use. But but with Bible open, because God's word is sufficient and there's not an asterisk saying it's sufficient for everybody but the presidents. They need some action. No. God's word is sufficient. 
that you with Bible open could take a call from the president today and advise him according to the word of God. That's the sufficiency of scripture to a level that blows my mind. Because I'm under no impression I could be the president out of my league. But I know I could give him what God's word says. And that if he applied it, could actually guide a nation according to the word of God. That's the power of the word of God. As Steve Lawson says, the Bible is more relevant than tomorrow's newspaper and more reliable than tomorrow's sunrise. Do you believe that? I mean, test your trust in the word of God. Pick up the phone if he calls you today. Say, you know what? I'm glad my pastor prophetically warned me you'd be giving me a call, president. Let's go to Daniel 4. I hope that encourages you for whatever call you get this week from whomever it is. Do you really believe your Bible is sufficient? So start with whoever has a need this week for guidance from God's word. And let it be up to him when you get the call from someone else. So what will be this revelation? What will um, Daniel have to say? And and even more so, what what will Nebuchadnezzar do as a result? Let's look. Next section, a judicious Jew in King Neb's court. Daniel has shown himself back in chapter uh, 1 to be set apart. And in chapter 2, it says he, he responded to a situation with prudence and discretion. So let's see if um, in this big moment of testing, he, he can keep it up. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. And his thoughts alarmed him. Well, there you have something interesting. When he hears this dream, and then it says he was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. He's he's thinking, and on his face is a visible expression of alarm. In fact, it's the same word at the beginning of the chapter that when Nebuchadnezzar said, when I was at ease in my palace and prospering, I saw a dream and the visions of my head alarmed me. Daniel's alarmed by this. Is it because Daniel's worried for himself? Hey, if he goes, I go. No, because that would be ego. And Daniel has shown himself not to have that, does he? But what he has is compassion. And that's beautiful. And that's needed. He has compassion for the king, it seems. The king says to him, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or interpretation alarm you. And Daniel responds and says, but my Lord, may this dream be for your enemies, those who hate you. What does this tell you about him, his character? He's not just submissive to the king, his boss. He's his friend. A man that I'm sure in the decades of service, he has found himself at odds with, in disagreement with some of King Nebuchadnezzar's oppressive actions. Moving ahead down to verse 27. He has not sat back, I'm sure, and said, yep, I like it. Just throw those guys in a furnace if they disagree and rip limb from limb those guys if they can't tell you. You know, that's really some good leadership, Nebuchadnezzar. But he's not um, undermining or indifferent, is he here in this verse? He shows, I think, an expression or illustration of Ephesians 4, 15. Speak the truth in love. And you don't have to compromise the truth or the love to do that, do you? He's showing love to the king in in even his physical expression. And then in his response, I don't want this for you. That's amazing, isn't it? And that's how we should be. He's saying, may this dream be for your enemies, but not for you. But at the same time, in that care or compassion, he doesn't compromise the truth. And we're about to see that. So he says, the tree you saw, and then he describes it. It grew, it was strong, it reached the heavens, everybody could see it. He's just repeating word for word. He's letting the king know he heard it exactly as it was told. He's not embellishing or changing any of it. And what, is, what was the point of that tree? It was to be abundant and people prosper under it. Food for all, beasts for shade. 
Branches for the birds, verse 21, all of it. He just repeats it back to them and says, look, everything that should happen under a king for prosperity of people around it and and greatness of, of a kingdom has happened to you. So verse 22, Nebuchadnezzar, here's the good news. It's you. You're the tree. What's the bad news? Well, it's you, Neb. And um, you've grown and become strong. And your greatness has grown and it's reached to the heavens. And your dominion to the ends of the earth. But let me tell you about what those watchers wanted you to know. Verse 23. Chop down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth. Bound with a bound of band of iron and bronze. And the tender grass of the field. And in, in that part that says, let him, which is you, be wet with the dew of heaven and his portion be with the beast and seven periods of time pass over. Let me tell you what that's about because that's what you need to know. You know that you've prospered. You've, you've become great and your dominion is known all over the world. But let me tell you the downside of this. Verse 24, it's a decree of the most high which has come upon my Lord the king that you'll be driven. Notice the passive verb. You'll be driven. You're not going to do this of your own doing. It's going to be done to you. You can't resist this. You'll be driven from among men. And not only that, your dwelling will now be with the beasts. And you'll be made, notice again, you'll be made to eat grass like an ox. And you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And you will live in this state for seven periods of time. We don't know if that's seven years or seven being a word often in the Old Testament for a perfect time, a complete time. We don't know what it is. The, time, the amount of time isn't the important thing. For a period of seven periods of time will pass over you and here's how you get out of it. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's what's got to change in you. You're going to be in this beast-like state Losing the power and prestige and influence of your kingdom, but not losing the kingdom. So you don't got to worry about that. But you'll be in this state till you realize who it is that gave it all to you. And who gives it to anyone. Verse 26. And it was commanded. This is the good news at the end of the bad news after the good news. The stump will be protected. It'll stay there. And your kingdom shall be confirmed. It'll come back. It'll be restored From the time that you know that heaven rules. So there it is, brother. I love you. I care about you. I wouldn't want this to happen to you. We've had a good run, Babylon. But thus saith the Lord. If you're going to stay in the state that you're in, thinking more highly of yourself than you ought, you'll be the stump. And then he seems to add a bit of personal advice that uh, isn't... um, It's not Daniel, I think, overreaching and saying, but you can reverse this all, as in you can um, change a decree of the watchers from heaven. But I think um, maybe it's just, hey, all I know to tell you at this point, because heaven rules and and you need to know it. Therefore, O king, verse 27, uh, let my counsel be accepted to you. This is me speaking, not heaven speaking. See the difference? He's not saying he's the watcher. He's He's just saying, I got some advice. (laughs) If I'm in your shoes... Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. And and maybe, just maybe, perhaps there'll be a lengthening of your prosperity. Notice he didn't say there'll be an ending of your adversity, as in you'll get out of it. He's just saying maybe you can buy some time. But I think there's a, a good word for that, a good word for us in seeing how practical repentance can look, can it? For a guy who's kind of talked the talk but not walked the walk for three chapters. For a guy who at the end of each chapter seems to pay lip service. Hey, there's a, most, there's a high God. Uh, you're associated with him. He's kind of reading. He's just, he's just reading the game as it unfolds. Uh, you guys, uh, you know, Daniel and your friends, you always seem to be on the winning side of things. So, yeah, you know what? Go team Israel. But then he just goes back to his old ways. So this practical repentance has, um, it touches down where? It says, show mercy to the oppressed. Because that's not the way you've led. So maybe God would be pleased to um, give you a little more time, buy you some more time on the clock. If you would repent, break off your sins. That's a good definition for repentance. Keep it in your mind. Break off your sins. Yes, To be born again, you have to look to Christ in faith. 
But there is a breaking off of sin as in it's a U-turn, repentance is. It's a turning around. It's a change of mind. You can't keep just saying something. Yeah, I believe all that. Yeah, Jesus, yep, Bible Belt, right, signed up for it 68 times. Got a Bible and, you know, everybody signing off to prove it. At some point, it shows up. You've changed. And Daniel is saying, look, I can give you some counsel. Um, your practice should be different. You've, you've been saying, yeah, my God is the most high God, whatever you say, but you know what? You haven't changed. I mean, this is the Nebuchadnezzar, remember, that wants to throw somebody into the fire just on a whim or have them torn limb from limb. Or you could read later this week, 2 Kings 25, 1-7, when he goes in to remove Zedekiah from power, and the last sight he gives that king of Judah is what? He slaughters his sons in front of him to show your line of reign is over, and then he gouges out his eyes. So the last sight that this king of Israel saw was his own sons being killed, and that's it. Not a nice guy. So there is a practical dimension to this repentance. And maybe, just maybe, God will show you mercy. It's John the Baptist to the Pharisees in Matthew 3, 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. What's the result? The offer's been given to Nebuchadnezzar. Will he humble himself or will he oppose God? Verse 28 to 30. Here's the king's answer. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of 12 months, it's a year later, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered. Who he answers, we don't know. Maybe he's talking to himself and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. He looks out, and, and mind you, Babylon, if it's where we think it is today, um, south of Baghdad, 60 miles, it's a very flat, desert, plain-like area. He brought in a ton of stuff to build this thing up. So when he's standing on the roof of his palace, which I would imagine is the highest place within, and he's looking out, he can see a far distance in every direction. And he looks out from the roof, and what does he see? Himself. Which is what pride causes us to do, isn't it? Pride causes us to look out around everything that's a gift, around everything that is grace, around everything that is created and sustained by God, and we see us. We take credit where it's not due. We commit, as Tim Keller calls it, cosmic plagiarism. Where it's clearly the author's work, but you're trying to pass it off as your own. So that's what Nebuchadnezzar does here. He commits cosmic plagiarism. How does he do it? He gets wrong the means and the end. Look at verse 30. It's right there. He wasn't entirely wrong in saying Babylon was great. It was. I mean... We're still studying. I mean, they're still studying it today. Watch a documentary this week on it. It was amazing. It was great. And he did build it. But he got this wrong by my mighty power. He got the means wrong. Because remember at the beginning of Daniel 1, God gave over to who? Nebuchadnezzar. And did Nebuchadnezzar appoint himself as king or was he born into a family of kings? All his power was what? It was given. But prideful people forget that. It's given. It's gift. So he gets the means wrong, but what really messes him up is he has the ends completely wrong. I was given, or not I was given this, I did all this by my power for the glory of my majesty. Absolutely not. It's never for the glory of our majesty. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord and that is my name and I will not give my glory to another. So the means are wrong. It's not just your power, Nebuchadnezzar. And you're certainly wrong about the ends for which you were given anything. It was not for the glory of your own majesty. What's the response of heaven? While the words are in his mouth, he barely gets the word majesty out. And then God says from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it's been spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. Heaven spoke. 
It's as if God said, young man, it's time for you to sit down and shut up. It's not by your mighty power. And it's certainly not for your own glory. And because you don't recognize that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, I'm taking it from you. If you have an NASB, the translation is, your sovereignty has departed from you. And that's a good expression for it. Because sovereignty means control. And you don't have to have a kingdom to think you're in control. You just have to, in your pride, think that you have more control than you do. Thomas Watson, Puritan preacher, said, The problem with pride is it seeks to un-God God. And with that line in verse 30, that's what Nebuchadnezzar had finally done. He saw himself as the means and the ends which makes him God. And so it's removed. And then the fulfillment of all of it, 32, uh, all of it happened. You will be driven. Your dwelling will be out there with the beasts. Seven periods of time will pass. Verse 32 again, until you know the most high rules, the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Verse 33, immediately the word's fulfilled because God's word comes to pass. Count on it. It came to pass. And so what was happened to him? He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as an eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. It's as if God said this. If you're going to act like an animal by always keeping your head down and not looking up, I'm going to treat you like one. Because that's what he essentially was doing. He may have been looking out, but he certainly wasn't looking up. And in our pride, we do the same. We, we, we live with our head down. And it's easy to think you're God that way, isn't it? To exalt yourself and, and look down on things around you. So why give him the mind of a beast? Because he was acting like one. The great divide. Beast and man. Well, if you're not going to look up and thank your creator for what has been given you, then you're no better than a beast. It's essentially the lesson God is teaching Nebuchadnezzar here and he's warning us with. You lose your mind when you lose sight of God. Mark it. You'll lose your mind in the things you'll be willing to do. The sin you'll be willing to pursue. Because if God is out of the picture, then his authority is gone. And if his authority is gone, then you get to make it up as you go along. And you could do that by way of legalism, making up your own rules, or libertinism, having no rules. But either way, you're the rule giver. And you're putting yourself opposed to God in doing that. You're picking a fight with the Almighty in doing that. And his arm is never too short. But ours certainly is, isn't it? And the tail of the tape. He's got the reach on you, brother. So you don't want to pick a fight with him. And the thing about pride that's kind of different from other sins is, um, you know, you think about the other sins we commit and they require an object down here for us, you know, to, 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 to fulfill. Envy, anger, lust. But the thing about pride is when it gets down to it, the object of our sin is God. Now, when you commit all sins, you are what? Opposing God. But pride is unique in that you are offending the Almighty by trying to un-God God. That's the big problem with it. That's why Proverbs can say that um, 16.5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. An abomination the strongest word for offensive, repugnant, disgraceful. Why? Because you're refusing to acknowledge he is God over you. You may be willing to, like Nebuchadnezzar in general terms, say, sure, he reigns over all, but he don't rule over me. As if he's just up there, apart, transcendent, abstract, indifferent. You want to name it, do it. But he also rules over you. Every facet 
of your existence and mine. So God makes him like the beast that he was acting like. Fastest way to ruin your life is think you're sovereign, you're in control, you're God. And then, what's the grand turnaround? Well, um, look at verse 34. At the end of the days. You can't move past that phrase because God's word is coming true right there, isn't it? Why he gets out of this is not because of his own doing. God was done teaching him the lesson. God was sovereign over the end of the days, the seven periods. Neb didn't bring it to an end by his own doing. God did. And by God bringing it to an end, what can he do in response? I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. The cure for our pride? Looking up. A right view of God, a high view of God. What do we struggle with in our pride? A low view of God. The, the, the low view of God that Nebuchadnezzar had in the high view of God that he had. So by looking up, his reason returns to him. And he does what? Immediately he moves into praise. The first thing off his lips, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And then he just unleashes a song of praise to God's sovereignty in his life. Why? He, his dominion. It's an everlasting dominion. God is eternal. Nebuchadnezzar, I can't compete with that. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Mine's going to come to an end. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. <laughs> What am I going to add? What am I going to teach God? I'm Nebuchadnezzar. I might be in charge of Babylon, but I'm nothing, just like everybody else. Why? Because he does according to his will among the host of heaven. His desires rule, not mine. And among the inhabitants of the earth, none can stay his hand and say to him, what have you done? The ultimate, uh, I would say, the last kingdom to fall in the... uh, In the kingdom of our hearts, the the last castle to fall is our pride that wants to say to God, what have you done? And Nebuchadnezzar admits, none can stay his hand or say to him, rightly justified, what have you done? You know, the literal rendering of none can stay his hand is this, none can slap away his hand. What do we do when we slap away somebody's hand? It's a, it's, a, it's a mark of uh, authority. My kid wants to touch the hot oven or the stove, slap his hand away. Because I love him. I don't want him to get burned. He doesn't know what's bad for him. And, and nobody does that to God. Ever. Now that could sound arrogant. None can, none can even ask him, what have you done? Well, it's the questioning that's not out of a, oh God, what are you doing? I have no idea. I'm, I'm flipped upside down. Help me. That's not what this is. That's... Who are you, God, to do that? And the answer is built into verse 35. Um, The inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. What does he gain? What perspective would God need from me? I was thinking about this. If I'm, you know, we need a new direction in this church. I'm going to go over to the three-year-olds and ask what they think. Yeah. You know, the future is, they're the children. I'm going to go to the three-year-olds and get their insight on what we should do. I know what three-year-olds tell me I should do. Some, they come up to me as I eat, three meals a day. Some, they just want food in their mouth. You want that for the future of this church? We'll change to some church. And we just food all the time. I'm trying to make a really ridiculous point. There would be more wisdom to be found for me reaching out to the toddlers to lead this church than for God to reach out to me to lead this universe. That's the great divide. You just got to own that. The inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. As in what? He, He loves us. It's not saying we're worthless. We're created in his image. 
but we do not add to him. The great misnomer in, in the word supreme being and human being is not in the adjective, it's in the noun. God's being and our being are entirely different beings. To try to put us in the category with him, he's supreme and we're just a few notches down as humans. No, he's in the category of his own called creator, sovereign, ruler, maker. None of that applies to us. That's what makes him God, God. And when we reconcile with that, we can be like Nebuchadnezzar with restored vision, seeing God rightly in ourselves in light of his greatness. Verse 36, after recognizing the right thing about God, look what God does by his grace. He gives grace to the humble, and that's what 36 to 37 teaches us. My reason returns, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. Meaning, look, for the glory of, of my kingdom, God gave back the majesty and the splendor. It came back. And even the guys that would have been saying for the last few years, like, have you seen Nebuchadnezzar lately? He's turned into a cow. He did. They came back to him. They sought him. That ain't happening outside of the providence of God. If ever there was a time for somebody to rise up and start a coup, it's when your boss turns into bovine, right? That's pretty easy to overthrow the kingdom. Unless God said back in 26 that that stump isn't going anywhere by my divine decree. So everything came back to him. And then he says, even more greatness was added to me. What does that lead Nebuchadnezzar to do? To praise, verse 37. So now I, Nebuchadnezzar, full circle, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He's talking about himself. This is his testimony. So did he become a convert? I know we've been asking that. Like each chapter, like did he make it yet? We'll find out in heaven. I think that sounds like the words of somebody who's truly been humbled and sees God rightly, not only recognizing he deserves praise and honor and glory, the king of heaven, but even saying, and all his works are good. His ways are just. And you want to talk about me, King Nebuchadnezzar? I was prideful and he was gracious to humble me. So what vision do you need corrected this morning? Because God is willing to do it for you. If you find yourself in familiar territory, thinking some of the same thoughts or some of the same actions of Nebuchadnezzar today, may it be that God doesn't have to humble you in the way he did this king. And, And you can start that process by just saying, God, Help me to see it more. Help me to see where I set myself up against you, where I have too low of a view of you and too high of a view of me, and even on the horizontal level, a blurred view of reality with other people. Matthew 7, come to mind. When we're trying to work out relationships, why can't we help other people? Not because we're not supposed to. It says with the same measure you use, it'll be measured back to you, Jesus says. So first, if you're going to help me, or if I'm going to help you, i got to take the log of pride out of my eye to do work in your eye with that speck. But our pride gets our view of God out of whack, our view of ourselves out of whack, and even other people out of whack. We need whacked. We need humbled. And that's what God is gracious to give. Because when he humbles us, it's not merely to be an educational experience, it's transformational. Learning about our pride this morning is not for us to just leave here saying, I didn't know that verse was in there. Glad I know how to illustrate when someone else is being prideful. What a wonderful teaching. I've been educated. No, the joy of learning about our pride and just getting out the roots of it in our lives is because it transforms us. We're different, hopefully. We're more like our Savior who Curtis read in Philippians 2 did not what? 
Consider equality with God something to be held on to. But for your sake and my sake came down to earth, humbled himself, was obedient all the way to the cross. There's nothing more humbling than that so that you and I could live. If you're not in Christ today, no amount of self-reform will make you a more humble person. Christ will. Give your life to him today. Stop piddling around in the shallows of, I just want to appear more humble because it'll get me some. Yeah, you know what? That might get you somewhere down here, but it won't get you into heaven. You need Christ, who stepped out of heaven to get you there, to give you his perfect life, a perfectly humble life. And went to the cross and died a humiliating death that words can't describe, but he did. So that you could be forgiven. Would you give him your life today? Would you say, you know what, I'm not God. And I, I repent of my ungodding God. Have mercy to me, the prideful sinner. And he will do that for you today. Because his word says he gives grace to the Humble. So humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that it's, it is able to divide us, as your word says, down to, to joint and marrow between soul and spirit, as in to say it gets in to the darkest parts of our heart like nothing else can. And for that, we bring you praise. We thank you that we can learn from an example, something that we can identify and relate to that exposes our hearts, but puts it on the table so that you can heal it. And we ask that you would, by your Spirit's work through your word this morning, for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.